Well, I'm glad that Pastor Tracy said that no matter how this sermon goes, I'm still going to be ordained because, quite honestly, on the Sunday I was going to be ordained, I could have never imagined that the text assigned to me would include these words, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. <laughs> they really don't teach you how to deal with that while you're training for ministry, so. But anyway, here we go. One evening after an outing at a local Native American reservation, a family was headed down the Washington interstate. Jerry Sitzer, the father, was driving and Linda, his wife, was in the passenger seat. She had just finished teaching the children a homeschool unit on Native American heritage and she wanted them to see a powwow firsthand. The four children sat in the back and behind them sat Jerry's mother. This was a young family with so much to look forward to. Just a couple of nights earlier, Linda was commenting to Jerry just how, just how good God had been to them in their life together. The family enjoyed doing many outdoor activities, and on Jerry's desk at work, he proudly displayed a photo of his wife and children in front of a beautiful glacier landscape in the state of Washington. At the powwow that evening, one of the dances by the tribal leaders lamented the loss of a loved one. Jerry commented that it was an especially moving performance. And as the, as the family traveled along, Jerry noticed a speeding car in the rearview mirror. And as Jerry approached the curve, he slowed down, but the car behind him did not. And the driver struck the van at 85 miles per hour the family van spun out of control and crashed down to the road. Jerry awoke from the accident. And by the time the, emergencies worker, the emergency workers arrived, Jerry's mother, wife, and baby girl had died. A catastrophic and irreversible loss at 40 years old. In an instant, Jerry Sitzer became a grieving son a widower, and a single father of three. Three generations of women gone in a blink of an eye. The tragedy was so remarkable that it made local news headlines. A few years after the accident, Jerry wrote a book that chronicles what he felt that night. He says this, I realized that something incomprehensible and extraordinary had just happened. By some strange fate, twist of fate, or mysterious manifestation of divine providence, I had been suddenly thrust into circumstances I could have never imagined. I had become the victim of a terrible tragedy. Then listen to this. It was assigned, I was assigned both a tremendous burden and a terrible challenge. One phase of my life had ended, another the most difficult was about to begin. Well, if you're joining us today for the first time, we are in the fourth of the five poems we find in the book called Lamentations. And in this book, it retells the destruction and the devastation of the city of Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And as you just heard, the poet describes this destruction in totally unfiltered terms. It overwhelms our ears. 
catastrophic and irreversible loss fit the mood of this passage perfectly. And I don't think I'm alone in this, but just listening to the words of this chapter brings to mind the devastation we have seen in pictures and in video coming out of Ukraine in the past couple weeks, and not only there, but in Syria, Afghanistan, and other places as well we have seen over the years. The book of Lamentations speaks to us right where we are today, maybe personally, but definitely where we are on the world stage. Maybe you're like me, and you wish that the book of Lamentations ended with these hopeful words in chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. But instead of leaving us on, on that mountaintop experience of faith, the poet brings us back down, not just off the mountain, but back down into the valley of shadow of death again. Why does he do that? Because as difficult as it is to say, whatever your most recent loss, your job, your relationship, your loved one, your health setback, it will not be your last loss in this life. No matter how cautious we are, no matter what preventative measures we are taking, we never know what that next loss will be or when it will happen. We praise God that his mercies never fail, but as the poet shows us here in chapter 4, that on this side of eternity, we must be ready to receive those mercies even in the valley, not just on the mountaintop. We may not be living in a war-torn area or have had suffered the kinds of losses that Jerry Sitzer did, but you still wonder, how can I find God's mercies in the rubble of my life? How could there even be mercies to be found at certain times in my life? Well, we said earlier in the series that not all suffering we experience in this life is due to our personal sin. But God does punish sin, and that's the context of our passage this morning. The people are suffering because of Judah's sin. Whatever fleeting pleasure or small rewards we get when we break God's law, they do not last, and they do not satisfy. You can't turn away from the God of life and expect to live. The words of the old hymn are true. Only one life so soon it shall pass, only what's done for Christ will last. But it is also true that the effects of sin corrupt everything, from human bodies to organizational bodies. The tentacles of sin touch every part of life. So from all of this, we can conclude there may be clear occasions where we are suffering for, the, for our sin, but we can also say that there are many times we will suffer, not because of our sin, but perhaps because of someone else's, or simply because we wake up, we eat, we sleep, we work, and play in a world that is not yet fully redeemed by God. And here are where things get really complicated. If we are honest with ourselves, because we have such great difficulty denying our sinful natures, 
that even when there is not, uh, even if we're suffering due to not an obvious act of disobedience, how we choose to act in the face of that suffering can lead us down a sinful path. Hurt people hurt people. Isn't that true? So whether you look within you or you look around you, whatever the reason there is rubble in your life, what the Bible teaches and what this chapter will show us is that God has mercies for us in the rubble. That's what we'll see here in chapter 4. So there are two mercies we will discover together this morning as we get into this passage. Here's the first one. When we retell the story of our losses, we discover openings for redemption. When we retell the story of our losses, we discover openings for redemption. That's what we see in verses 1 through 12. Now, it's not uncommon for people to sit in silence when they receive bad news. They can stare off into the distance, and they could have trouble forming coherent sentences. There's a shock there. There's maybe even a deep denial that something bad has actually happened. But eventually, whether it's just to ourselves or to a trusted friend or to God himself, we will start to retell the story of our loss. People will continue to function biologically after a loss. They will continue to exist, but not until they are able to make sense and retell the story will they start to live in any true sense. And the reason for this is because we are meaning-making creatures. And what we have here again is the retelling of the fall of Jerusalem in poetic form. Before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, on the way to the holy city, God's people sang songs that had words like this in them. From Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Jerusalem built as a city, bound firmly together. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. You know, children, when they're en route to an exciting destination, they'll talk about it for days or maybe weeks or months ahead of time. If it's to a place like Disney, there are songs that they will sing from the movies in anticipation of going there. On a much larger scale and on a much, uh, in, in, in a much more significant way, God's people sang songs on the way to the holy city of Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to celebrate the holy acts of God. They couldn't wait to be closer to God's presence in the temple. And much like the holidays would be for us, these pilgrimages were the high point of their year. To see the temple, to see the palace of the king, all covered in gold and in fine stones, it would have filled them with great joy and confidence unlike anything else. This was the place where God's anointed leader ruled. This was the temple where God's presence dwelt in a, new, in a unique way. No other city on earth was like Jerusalem. In fact, the scriptures devote whole chapters telling us about what it took to build the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, and the king's palace. They tell us about the precious metals and all the people it took to build them. And now the poet shares this news with us. The holy stones of the temple 
lie scattered at the head of every street. Those secure walls celebrated in song were toppled down. And the people, the ones God declared to be his chosen possession and his treasure, they themselves have become chipped up pieces of pottery strewn along the city streets. This Babylonian siege would shatter the peace of Jerusalem that the pilgrims would pray for. But there's more to this poet's retelling here. Some losses are so severe that they make life totally unrecognizable. Loss turns our understanding of life and the world totally upside down. And look at how the poet shows us this. Gold, the purest of metals that was used in the temple to worship an incorruptible God has become tarnished. Unbelievably, ravenous jackals who show no mercy to their prey, well, they're portrayed as caring mothers. Caring mothers of God's people have become like wild ostriches that bury their eggs in the desert and run off from them and abandon them. You see, God's people cannot provide food for their own children anymore because of what Babylon has done to them. They were that deprived. Now, even when money is sparse or resources are thin, a determined caring mother will find a way to care for her children. But the siege is so severe that the poet witnesses the overturning of nature's basic instinct. Mothers boil their own children for food. The maternal instinct gives way to survival of the fittest. You know, many times when we're in immediate trouble, it's natural to think that more money will get us out of our situation, that wealth can help us float above our troubles some. But that's not what happens here. Both the rich and the poor suffer the same fate. In verses 5 through 8, we see that the ones who were feasting are now famished. The ones who can clothe themselves with expensive garments, who can tuck their lives away uh, in the shade in, the, in their big houses, are now sleeping on ash heaps in the streets. Their expensive clothes are covered with black soot. No amount of money could get them out of this dark cloud cover. Now amazingly, this poet survives this catastrophe. And if he were to encapsulate just how bad the destruction got, this is what he would say in verse 6. We have it there. Our punishment was greater than Sodom. The holy city of David fell to a far worse demise than the rejected city of Sodom. Fire came from the sky to consume Sodom, but what Babylon did to Jerusalem here was far worse, the poet tells us. When we experience an unexpected, catastrophic loss, we say things like this, how could this have happened? They looked so healthy when we saw them last time. Or we did all that we could to make sure that this wouldn't happen. We took all the measures and it ended up worse than we thought. 
So here's the question. Why retell the story of losses? How could there possibly be redemption in them? Maybe it's because it feels good to get it off our chest. Maybe it feels like we're releasing a burden when we do. But we'll never get back what we lose sometimes. And we can't go back in time to change it. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed in ways that are beyond imagination forever. And listen to what Jerry Sitzer says. Redemption is the work of Jesus Christ applied to the unfolding story of life, your life and my life. Redemption turns gospel truth into a dramatic narrative. In the months and years following the accident, I realized that the, tr- that the tragedy itself, however catastrophic, could actually play a less significant role than what God could do with it and how I would respond to it. I set my mind to ponder the redemptive redemptive course that was laid out before me, shrouded as it was in mystery. God is writing a cosmic story of redemption, and he wants to include every part of your life in that story. You know, there are very few people that we meet that we share our whole stories with. We introduce ourselves to people, and oftentimes we leave the hard stuff out. We try to shake off certain parts of our story when we're with others. A rejection letter, a drunk driving accident, trauma, divorce, a miscarriage, infertility, a broken home, a failed career, jail time, loss of a loved one. God knows every last detail of your losses. And nothing gets left out in his story of redemption for you. The reason we retell our stories of lament and loss is because God's plot line of redemption travels through your losses and not around them. So the question is, what would this look like if this were to unfold before us? Well, here are some examples I've seen over the years. One woman I met was a young mother, and she had recently lost her own mother. And as she was talking about the loss with her friends, she realized that the demanding work schedule that her mother kept up with growing up kept them at a distance between each other. When she came to that awareness, she decided that she wasn't going to take any more work projects on beyond what she could do. She would redeem the time with her children while they were young. And she believed that in doing that, God's mercies had far more for her in that time with her child than if she were to spend more and more hours working, losing that time. One high school star athlete I met ended up having a career-ending knee injury He had lost his opportunity to play Division I college sports. And just as he started to make sense of this loss, another star athlete and another sport suffered the same kind of injury. And although he didn't know how he himself would move forward, he reached out to that fellow student just to be there with him. 
And together they waited to see over the years just how God would work redemption through that story of disappointment. You know, the poem that we're reading today, despite all the calamity in it, is actually a well-structured work. Each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way from A to Z, so to speak. And though it records horrors most of us have never even seen in Hebrew, it's quite a beautiful poem. You see, the shape of the poem reveals a well-ordered plan of redemption, despite the chaos. And the sound of the poem, in Hebrew at least, shows us the beautiful potential of redemption in some of the most difficult times of life. It's right there for us to observe and to sing. So that's the first discovery. Now here's the second. When we relinquish our past to God, we can embrace his future. That's what we see in verses 12 to 20. When we relinquished our past to God, we can embrace his future. We have to retell the story of our past, and yet at the same time, we cannot hold on to it any longer. The past exists to us only in memory. We are forced to live in the present, each one of us. I'm wondering, what are the dreams you've had to relinquish in your life over the years? What have, ha- what have you had to give over to the hands of God? Well, here are some of the dreams that the poet had to give up. In Psalm 48, we read that the kings of the earth were astonished. Their jaws dropped in panic when they saw the strength of Jerusalem's gates. And in verse 12 in our passage, the poet tells us that the kings of the earth shake their heads in astonishment that such a great city has fallen. In Psalm 132, The writer there celebrates the righteousness of the priest. They are closed in righteousness. The priest would sing for joy in the presence of God, and they would bring the people's needs to the people. The priests were needed to restore the relationship with God. Now the poet must acknowledge this. We see it in verses 13 and 14, that they are no longer clothed in righteousness, but in fact the priests are the very reason that God has judged the city of Jerusalem. I don't know if you saw this, but in verse 13, it mentions that there was bloodshed by the religious leaders, by the priests. And that could be an allusion to uh, idolatry, uh, but it could also be reflective of the fact that they plotted murders against God's people. We see that they attempted this with the prophet Jeremiah. Could you see how much the priesthood fell over the years? How much it missed the mark? But perhaps worst of all, of all that the poet notes about losses, he says this about the king. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. In 2 Kings 25, we read that when Babylon took over Jerusalem, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was captured. His eyes were gouged out and his children were killed. How could God allow that to happen? 
You know, they used to sing psalms like this in Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you, O king, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Do you see all the dreams that the poet had to give up to God? Jerusalem is destroyed. The priesthood is corrupted. And the king is captured. It's all gone. When the poet realized just how he had to relinquish this legacy, could you imagine the tears that flowed from his eyes? But he cannot fathom. What he cannot see is that when he gives up his dreams to God, he hasn't actually lost them, but he has actually put them in better hands. Verse 22 says this, that the people's exile will end and they will have no idea what that will look like. And they don't realize that God, what God will do for them next will not only be to bring them good news, but to bring all people good news, all people who suffer in the world. Fourteen generations after the exile, Christ was born into the world. And as we heard earlier from the author of Hebrews, his life was filled with prayers and tears, just like it was for the poet and the people. He cried when death suddenly took away his friend Lazarus. He lamented like a mother for the children of Israel uh, over the holy city of Jerusalem. God's people were sent to exile for their sin, and Jesus took the prayers and laments of God's people to himself. And like a priest... He offered himself entirely to God on behalf of the community. For the sin of the world, he offered himself. And the one who bore all the griefs of the world was heard. And he died, and he was raised. And because his griefs and laments were heard, ours will be too. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He always stands in our place to bring our worship to God. You see, because Jesus Christ is our high priest, he has already redeemed our story perfectly. But we don't yet see how it will unfold. The poet and the people could have never imagined that such a priest would represent them again. But not only that, consider this. Earlier we said that the destruction of Jerusalem was worse than Sodom. It was reduced to rubble. But look at what the Apostle John sees at the end of time in Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. And look what happens to all their tears. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The poet had to relinquish his dream of what Jerusalem would be like. But look at what God gives him in return. A holy city that fills the whole earth. 
Jerusalem will not be a lost city in history like a piece of rubble. No, the new Jerusalem will be an eternal city with no tears, a temple like no other. On Jerry Sitzer's desk, he has a second picture of the family standing in the same spot the first picture was taken uh, many, many years later. Instead of four children, there are now three grown adults, and they are smiling and thriving. After the accident, Jerry had no time to grieve as he had to learn to raise three young children on his own. His days were packed with demands. Some days he couldn't keep it together so easily. Only at nights was there quiet, and many of those nights were filled with tears. But Jerry chose to believe God. And by God's grace, the losses he suffered did not break him, but God used them to remake him. Years after the accident, Jerry remarried, became a stepfather to two more children. He published books. He won Teacher of the Year several times at the university where he teaches. He became a grandfather. He cultivated many rich relationships. And over the years, he has been a friend and pastor to thousands of people who wrote to him about their losses. Jerry learned firsthand just how the soul grows through loss, that God had mercies in and beyond the rubble of life. A few years after the accident, Jerry published a memoir called A Grace Disguised. And 25 years after the accident, he published another memoir. And the name of that book was A Grace Revealed. He writes this in A Grace Revealed. I still think about the years when life seemed far more difficult after the accident. I embrace the life God gives me as a gift. But it is still a sign of redemption, not the thing itself in all its finality and perfection. It points beyond itself to something else, something greater. And that something greater is heaven, the true end of the redemptive story. I don't know how God will bring redemption from the losses of your life, but I do know that when we press on with Christ, God's mercies will open to you in your losses. And I don't know what dreams you've had to relinquish or what dreams you will have to relinquish in the years ahead, but I do know that there is no better place for those dreams than in God's hands. He will fulfill them better than we could have ever dreamed of in the first place, just as we saw for the poet and the people. And may that be our ongoing hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord God, we confess that your ways are strange. That when we look at the losses and troubles of our life, we have great difficulty seeing how you can make any good of this. But, oh Lord, thank you for the testimony of your word. And thank you for showing us just how Jesus Christ 
has it all under his control and how he is a reigning prophet, priest, and king for us forever. So Lord, in light of your grace towards us, fill our hearts with this joy even in the midst of our sorrows. We pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.